Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bearers, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of the Indigenous Art Programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to W. Richard Rick West, Jr. Richard West, Jr. is the founding director and director emeritus of the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of the American Indian. Richard West is a citizen of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes and a peace chief of the Southern Cheyenne. He is also a 2021 inductee into the National Native American Hall of Fame. Prior to his time as director of the NMAI and the Autry Museum of the American West, he was an attorney both in New Mexico and Washington, D.C., his devotion to community and his incredible vision for leadership has been an inspiration to generations of Native American leaders and the hosts of this podcast, especially. So without further delay, let's jump into the story with W. Richard West Jr. himself. Rick West, thank you so much for joining us on Five Plain Questions. It's really an honor to have you here. Thank you. I'm delighted to spend some time with you. I appreciate this so much. Uh, would you be able to introduce yourself? Uh, tell us about your yourself, your backgrounds, where you're from, and what it is that you do. Okay. Well, um, I guess I should begin by saying that technically I am retired now, um, although sometimes my wife doesn't feel that that's really the case. But uh, life for me actually began in California. I was born in California, as was my younger brother, Jim, uh, because my father was stationed here during World War II. Uh, but we departed rather quickly after the war for Oklahoma, uh, which is where uh, my father's, our native community is based. Uh, we are all members of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes uh, in Oklahoma. And uh, so that's, I was raised in Oklahoma as uh, part of that community. Uh, fast forwarding through, through growing up there, uh, professionally, there have been a couple of halves to my uh, career. I am trained as a lawyer. I graduated from Stanford Law School in 1971 and worked for a law firm in Washington, D.C. in their uh, American Indian Law Department. Uh, I went there for that reason. It was actually the branch of the firm that was established by Felix Cohen, who's really kind of considered to be the, the father of, of uh, American Indian law. He wrote the handbook that still is uh, what many of us go by. It's been updated several times. So I practiced there for the first half of my career and then switched over to the museum field. And everybody considers that something of a leap, but it really wasn't quite the leap it may seem in the sense that uh, my dad, who was the native part of half of my family, my mom was non-native. Uh, my dad was um, a distinguished member of the native fine arts movement in the state of Oklahoma for most of his professional life. And so I had spent a fair amount of time growing up around museums. They were not foreign institutions to me, simply because that's where much of his work was. And so uh, about halfway through my professional life uh, in 1990, uh, I switched careers and ceased practicing law and became the founding director of the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of the American Indian. And I was there for the better part of two decades. Uh, that was a startup project. Uh, I was honored to be there. I treasure the experience of having been there. 
And I was there until I retired in 2007. I was retired for a bit, uh, but then came out of retirement to become the director, the president and CEO of the Autry Museum of the American West here in Los Angeles. And that was really because they held what is probably the most significant or second most significant privately held uh, native collection, the old Southwest Museum of the American Indian in Los Angeles. And they wanted somebody who had a familiarity with those kinds of collections and preferably was native himself or herself. And so I came out of retirement and did that for the better part of a decade, uh, even after I had passed the 70 year old mark. Uh, and I enjoyed that immensely. And uh, we plan on staying in Los Angeles. Both of our own two children are here, our two grandchildren are here. You couldn't blow us out of LA with a bomb at this point. So here we are and uh, enjoying it immensely. And that is sort of the, the, the short form actually of, of my personal and professional career. Uh, just uh, because you mentioned uh, him, um, Ben West is a fantastic filmmaker uh, who recently um, created uh, a documentary, a very powerful documentary. Yes. Well, I, I appreciate your mentioning that, and I'm sure he appreciates your mentioning it, too. Uh, he did. And he uh, Ben went to school here in California at the University of Southern California and was in the School of Communications, but did some work at the USC Film School, which is a very distinguished institution and part of the university. And that was his commitment, commitment coming out of college is that he really wanted to work in, in the film industry and as a filmmaker. And bless his heart, even through the, the dog days of, of COVID, he managed to sort of keep it going and keep it funded. And it indeed was uh, premiered over the past year or so and has been uh, making stops uh, around the country and is actually going to have uh, theater openings beginning in New York and going on to Washington, D.C. and L.A. and other other places uh, beginning uh, this month, as a matter of fact. So it's uh, I'm, I'm proud of what he's been able to accomplish. And I'm sure his father, my his grandfather and my father, the artist, would also be very taken by the fact that uh, at least one of his grandchildren turned out to have a very strong right brain. Right on, right on. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, your influences. Um, who who were your biggest influences uh, growing up throughout your career, and even today? Uh, who and what's influencing you? Surely, well, I think influences hopefully begin at home if they're of a positive nature, and and mine were. Uh, it, it's interesting, I. Since I've now turned 80, I, I do think about these things from time to time now and reflect backward, um, always having, uh, I, I'm very future oriented, but, but you know, I do reflect on how I got here sometimes. And, and uh, the two most significant influences earliest in my life were my own parents. And it was interesting because theirs was a mixed marriage. Uh, you know, my my dad being a citizen of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes, as I mentioned, my uh, mother, a uh, non-native, actually being the daughter of missionaries um, coming from sort of 
almost the opposite side of the tracks, if you will, from a cultural standpoint. Uh, but it was my mom who acquiesced, and gladly so, in my father's decision and urging that we move back to Oklahoma, which were where his own cultural roots were and where the Cheyenne, Southern Cheyenne community is uh, in Western Oklahoma, so that my brother and I could be raised in that surround. So at the same time that that was happening, where my brother and I, through my father's eyes, were made an integral part of the Cheyenne community. Um, at the same time, both of them were very much committed to our being equipped to deal not only with the Cheyenne world into which we were born, but also worlds that surrounded the Cheyenne world, if you will, in the 20th and 21st centuries. And so I credit both of them for having been incredibly influential. And um, if, you, if you look at it, their marriage and having us was almost a metaphor for what I have pursued in life. I refer to myself sometimes as, as a bit of a boundary walker. I have a very clear conception of where I come from. I am a sisters. I am Cheyenne. But I have worked in settings where I'm just across the boundary, if you will, uh, from an outside world and, and trying to figure out how to deal with that. That was true as a lawyer, as a native rights lawyer, where I was dealing in, in worlds that were not ours, even from a legal standpoint, in courts that were not ours by creation, um, trying to figure out how in that atmosphere uh, we sustain uh, the constitutionality and the legality of, of, of what native nations are and their prerogatives and their legal rights. Uh, but it was kind of at the boundary, if you will. Being at the Smithsonian was very much the same. I was asked to start what is probably uh, one of its first on a, on a national and international basis, uh, multicultural museums, in other words, an ethnic-specific museum. Uh, but I was different from mo most other directors there. Uh, most other directors there were 55 years old. I was still in my 40s, I hasten to point out. Um, they graduated from Yale and they were non-native. Uh, that was sort of the world around me. And so, again, I was kind of walking along a boundary, but trying to give native voice uh, to that institution, the National Museum of the American Indian. And, and so those are two major influences. Along the way, I have met others who had a great impact upon me, many of them, you know, my own native friends and colleagues. Uh, and I can, uh, several of them were actually on the board of directors of the National Museum of the American Indian. Uh, people like Vine Deloria Jr., uh, Suzanne Chonharjo, you know, they, they, are, they are powers de force from a cultural standpoint. Uh, in the Native community, and they had great impact upon me and how I worked my way through both lawyers' um, issues when I was practicing law. Vine himself was also a lawyer, in addition to being a, 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 um, 
in addition to being a, a professor in the university. And Suzanne Chonharjo is probably the most effective unlicensed lawyer I have ever seen in my life. She knows the law like the back of her hand. So these are, so that was part of it. Then there were other collaborators, honestly, outside of the, outside of the native community. Um, I, I would cite people whom I met in the museum field. And in the museum field, not only did I have my post at the National Museum of the American Indian, but I became very active in the International Council of Museums where I met lots of leaders from what I would call the South. And I don't just mean the Southern United States. I mean the Southern part of the world where there were lots of other indigenous peoples working through the same issues I was, Australia, New Zealand, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And some powerful and in, informing collaborators uh, showed up there too. I have always tried to on the one hand, never assume that I'm the most knowledgeable and smartest person in the room. And, and conversely, flipping the coin over to rely upon those who have much to teach me, whatever my position and wherever I am. And that has been my assumption, both when I was practicing law, American Indian law, uh, and on the other hand, when I became the director of the NMAI. You touched on this at the, uh, in the introduction, um, but how have you developed your career, uh, both in, in college and post-college, and the, the shift in careers? Well, see, I, I see it as an, as an eminently logical evolution in my own mind, um, even though some others did not. Uh, but, but I do. When I was practicing law, I, I came out of law school in the early 70s. In that respect, I was sort of a native child of the 1960s. I originally had gone off to uh, graduate school. Uh, I was going, uh, both my parents were college teachers. And, and so there was kind of a, a certain inertia that ran that way, you know, given uh, decisions I was trying to make post-collegiate. Post uh, but I had only been at uh, in grad school for a very brief period of time, and I decided that was it, it was a mistake that I had almost gone to law school anyway. It was sort of between law school and graduate school, and I really felt that that being a native lawyer in the mid in the '60s and beginning in the practicing in the '70s uh, was much closer how should I put it, to the sociocultural barricades of change making. Um, and so that's why I decided to, to head for uh, practicing law. And so, as I did say earlier, that was a career where we were doing our very best to protect the legal prerogatives and the legal authority of Native nations as sovereign entities, politically, but then also culturally, because in the end, it occurred to me finally, after I had practiced law for a number of years, what was it I was trying to do? What I was trying to do was to protect for the future a way of life and a way of life that is different from what the other sociocultural surround may be for Native communities. And that that we needed to make sure that that, that objective received sustenance too. And, and thus began 
my readiness to transition from practicing law to being the director of the muse of a museum, and especially the national institution in this country, which candidly holds much of our stuff to this day, and trying to make sure that we kind of turn the original paradigm on its head. Um, Native people, for the most part, didn't like museums. I remember going to the very museum over which I presided as the founding director, the National Museum of the American Indian, when I was a 13-year-old kid in my first trip east of the Mississippi, coming from Oklahoma back to visit the old High Foundation Museum of the American Indian in New York City. That collection became the National Museum of the American Indian. But I, re I remember my, my reaction walking in to one of the huge and numerous storage rooms they had and looking at rows of regalia. I'd never seen so many Cheyenne baby carriers in my life as I did when I walked in to that part of the museum, which held Plains material, of which Cheyenne material was a significant part of the collection, and thinking, what is this doing here? Cheyennes are not in the Bronx in New York City. They're in Oklahoma and Montana at this point, for the most part. Um, and so I, you know, that was, you know, that was something which I just wanted to, to set right if I could. So I saw the National Museum of the American Indian as an institution that obviously does serve the public, but I wanted to be sure that it's human and material assets were put also at the disposal of native communities themselves. I did not expect all native people to come to Washington DC and New York City where we have facilities, the National Museum of the American Indian. I wanted to figure out ways that we could take the museum and its assets to Indian country and share authority with them uh, over um, patrimony that really began as theirs and with respect to which I considered Native communities and Native people to be the true, the true constituents. That's, it's, it's a brilliant way of, of, of looking at that, and, and definitely a shift in the traditional uh, museum way of presenting work or uh, presenting um, uh, objects. Yes, it was. In fact, it sort of turned the paradigm on its head. Um, and, and so from that evolved what were the original three uh, tenets of the, of the mission of the museum. It was A, to be sure that, that that museum invoked the voices of Native people themselves and didn't have us repeatedly and forever interpreted in the third person voice, that we had a first person voice. We knew something about ourselves and we intended to make sure that museums um, enlisted that voice directly and on, a, on an unfiltered basis in interpreting things in our collection. And the second, the second aspect of the, of the mission was to be sure that people understood that we were contemporary people, just like you and me, having this conversation in March of 2023 and making our way through the 21st century, and that we were not, not some ethnographic remnant that was about to be pushed off the stage of history, that we had a deep history, which we honored and respected, but that we intended for our cultural lives to be prospective 
and not just retrospective. And then finally, the third tenet of the, of the mission was indeed that we, that we have both of those things in mind and figure out what I called at the time the fourth museum, which is to say that museum which intersects with Indian country in very direct ways um, by bringing either parts of the collection to institutions that are community-based, to tribal museums, which are of which there are many now and many flourishing. Um, and that from a programmatic standpoint, we, we constantly conducted a bilateral relationship with contemporary Native communities. One thing I, I really appreciated um, about uh, your work at the NMAI is the, the integration of technology um, <laughs> with, with, um, with the, the objects. Um, and we can talk about this uh, another time, but um, right. it's, I, I just really appreciated uh, the fact uh, that objects were presented, um, but through the voices of, of uh, indigenous people. Sure, sure. And that has a lot to do with how uh, museology and museum practice itself has, has evolved. Um, there, of course, is the invocation of first-person voice. Um, but it is, it turns out that a museum is not so much about the objects per se, but it is stories about the people who have a relationship with those objects and what they mean uh, in that context. Um, and it, it goes much toward my conception of a museum as being not simply a storage bin for material, but as being a gathering place where all kinds of things are fair game for discussion and conversation, even controversy if it comes to that. And, and that, that it's my notion of the museum as forum, as civic space and social place, and, and not just a, a stop on the tour bus route in Washington, D.C. or New York City. If, if the viewer could see me right now, I'm just nodding my head in agreement. Uh, this is great. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I appreciate that. Um, the How have opportunities presented themselves to you or how have you sought opportunities uh, over your career? Well, some of them have been self-defined or self-initiated, I suppose. Others have not been. Uh, just as example, I, I spoke earlier about the fact that I kind of started off in grad school because that was sort of, I don't know, just the, the natural pulse that came my way because both of my parents uh, did similar things. Uh, but then, then I made the decision that no, that's, that's really not the exact way I wanted to go. I wanted to relate to the native community as they had, because my, my dad and my mom taught at a place called Bacon College in the state of Oklahoma, which was one of the uh, first sort of private institutions uh, that was a college that was post-secondary. Uh, there weren't that many of them believe it or not, uh, when my dad was trying to make his way through school in the first part of the 20th century. Um, so, you know, there, there, there was that, but I, I, um, you know, I, I wanted to, uh, sort of enlist that and sort of pushing my, myself in a slightly different direction, direction and becoming a lawyer, which I did. On the other hand, 
I will say that the that the going to the National Museum of the American Indian was more kind of coming to an intersection that was not of my own creation and having an opportunity that I did not necessarily seek, but that I will never regret having had. Uh, and that was honestly when all of the uh, creation of the NMAI was happening in the late 80s and legislation was before Congress and they began looking for a director. I had just left a firm in Washington, D.C. to join a smaller native-owned law firm in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, and, and so I had just moved out to Albuquerque, New Mexico, take family, my wife had to sort of change career. She'd been at this, she's a lawyer also, and she'd been at the State Department and uh, began teaching at the University of New Mexico Law School. And, and you know, our kids went out of school in Washington, D.C., and we all went to Albuquerque. And we'd been there a little over a year, I guess, when something happened uh, at the Smithsonian that brought it all in front of me. And that was that uh, before I, while I was still a practicing lawyer in Washington, I had had some connection with the Smithsonian Institution. And I had served on, on one of their secretarial committees. In other words, the secretary of the Smithsonian is the head of it. And he had set up this particular committee that he asked me among others to serve on. And I did. And when the uh, legislation was about to be passed and the secretary knew that that was going to become a reality for the Smithsonian, he said to one of his senior staff, he said, well, I, you know, they, who was asking, well, who are you going to try to get? You know, who should be running this? And, and uh, the secretary, Secretary Adams said, well, you know, here's what I think. I think that, that uh, unfortunately, we have lost somebody because he's just moved to Albuquerque. But I would like to have somebody with a particular skill set, direct connections with the Native community, active engagement of the Native community professionally in his life, uh, who knows Washington very well and is comfortable in this kind of setting. And he said, um, you know, that per, he said, the guy said, well, who is that? And he said, well, it's Rick West. And, and so that person got back to me and said, well, would you be interested in doing something like that? And I said, after... 24 hours when neither my wife nor I slept. We were on a ski trip in Colorado. Um, I said, of course, I'd like to try to do that. Now, I went through a very, very lengthy and rigorous search process, and there were other, many other people considered. I happened to get the appointment ultimately. And that, so that was, that was an opportunity that came to me, and I took it. Um, and so my professional career has kind of been I think a mix of things that were self-directed, but things that arrived uh, in front of me that were not necessarily of my own creation. But I think the consistent thread through all of that is that I have always sought engagement, whether as a lawyer as a, or as a museum director with lots of other people around me. Um, I've never been in a cocoon, uh, 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 in terms of, of my professional life. And so it's that kind of in and out mixture, outside inside mixture that has created many of the paths that I have followed in my life. 
And they have been principally two. I've been a lawyer, practicing lawyer, and I've been a museum director. And I loved both of them, but I'm glad that I ended up being a museum director because I think ultimately it's a tad bit more exciting, at least to me, uh, than practicing law every day of my life. What would you say to the 18 to 22 year old that's listening to this conversation? So in answering the question about what would I say to younger people, here's, I think, what I would say. And, and I, I've said some of this to my own children um, who are not 18 to 22, which is probably at least two generations behind me, but are at least a generation behind me. But I'd say the same thing to both. I've said that. Uh, both of my kids, even though they were raised in Washington, D.C., and uh, now live in, in Los Angeles, are inextricably linked to the Native community. Uh, ben, as you pointed out, is a filmmaker. Uh, he's been with me routinely for Sundance in, in, uh, in Oklahoma at Southern Cheyenne. Uh, where I'm, I am a member of the Society of Peace Chiefs of the Southern Cheyenne, and they are the overseers, if you will, of the of the, our Sundance ceremonies. And so he's been down there with me on those occasions. Uh, Amy is a faculty member of the USC Medical School, uh, but much of her work has been with Native communities and trying to make people understand what Native people themselves bring to the notion of healing and the treatment of both physical and, and uh, mental challenges, if you will, that, that confront Native peoples in an abundance uh, at this time. So what I would say is that the baton is passing. And, and as an 80-year-old, I, I certainly appreciate that. And what I would say is I have confidence in the generations coming along behind me. The baton can be picked up in any number of ways. And I have seen us evolve in almost all of them during my lifetime. And I see such, such hope and, and such possibility uh, in young people, wherever you're looking. I can look to the law where I've been. There are, pro there are multiples of native lawyers working directly for tribes, working for law firms, on behalf of tribes uh, that are even outside of the native community. In the arts, it is everywhere. Uh, in the arts and museum work and museums relating to native artists, it's, it's, it simply is explosive at this point in terms of the work that is being done there. But that's just what I know, particularly. You can look at the fields of education, business, economic development, et cetera. We have such a stronger footprint than we did when I was beginning professional life in the late 60s and early 70s. And it's not that we've solved all problems. We still have lots of challenges and issues. But I, I just have faith that if those who may be listening to this are willing to pick up the baton, they can carry it and they can carry it well. And I would simply say, I am depending upon you. And I think that I feel safe and hopeful in that dependence on you, because I think you'll do it. What, what do you have going on right now? What's, what's next for you? 
Well, <laughs> I think I, I did decide that uh, when you turn 80, you, you probably shouldn't be directing museums anymore. <laughs> it, it is time to let somebody else do it. Okay. Speaking of, of, of those who, who come by, behind you. And so uh, I did make the well, I had retired once before. So I'm now in my third attempted at retirement. And my wife said, darling, this is better be the three, three and better be the charm because I'm not doing this again. <laughs> so so I, I plan to make this retirement stick. But, you know, there are lots of things that that interest me still. And I, I will say a couple of things. One is that I did try to pick carefully how I remained involved in, in, in things. Um, I think I'm beyond having a day job at this point. And that's just not for my benefit. That's for the benefit of others too. <laughs> I, I think there's a point when no, much how, no, no matter how much steam we thought we had when we were 40 and 50 and even in our 60s, it begins to peter out in terms of daytimes and lengthy daytimes when you become 80. Um, so I recognize that. But I, uh, I am now on a number of boards Nonprofit boards. I, I've never been been on a for-profit corporation board, but I'm on a number of nonprofit boards that relate to one of three things, or sometimes to a couple of these items at, at one time. Um, nonprofits that relate to Indian issues, either museum or legal, um, and um, issues that relate to the environment, and and I'm probably spending time with. Uh, three or four or five different boards at the moment doing that uh, and enjoying it immensely. Um, I, I think that uh, all of them can benefit. Uh, some of them are primarily Native organizations like ATOM, the Association of Native Archives, Muse Libraries and Museums. And, and so there that, you know, feels very much like home to me because I'm surrounded by my own and others, you know, I'm not, I'm on, sit on the board of the Denver Art Museum, which has one of the most dazzling collection of, of native material and native art in the country. Uh, and they ask me on because of my specific previous experience being the founding director of NMAI and being a director and president of the Autry Museum of the American West. So, you know, I, I feel that, that I can still be involved with those issues which have made up my life, both as a native lawyer, as well as a, a native museum director. And so I'm, I'm spending a fair amount of time doing that. I am not one of those, um, Museum directors, and there are a lot, the minute they sort of push their chair away from the desk are on the consulting circuit. I, I, I don't do that. And my wife would shoot me if I tried to do that. Um, I quite frankly want to spend more time with my six and three-year-old grandsons. Uh, and and uh, being on the consulting circuit all of the time is inconsistent with that. So I won't do that. Um, so that's, you know, that's what I have done. And, and uh, I think that so far it's working out fine. My wife feels that I've gotten on about two boards or three boards too many, but we'll figure that out as we go forward. I've just been retired for a year, year and a half. And so, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll do that. And then I have taken on a couple of projects 
that I are just so fascinating to me. One of them is a, a, a consultancy with the Rauschenberg Foundation in, in New York, uh, where an artist foundation is actually interested in trying to figure out uh, how the land rights of native people are protected. And, and so since I have sat on foundation boards before, it's kind of an opportunity to, to help somebody who's already kind of going that direction to figure out how they really get their nails in it. And, and on that uh, advisory group, you know, there are other native people on it too, distinguished native artists and other, and both of them, a good 40 to 50 years younger than I am. Um, there's a native artist and a, and a younger native lawyer on it. So it's those kinds of things that, that I think are, are really worthwhile. And I'll make an exception to my no consultancy rule if something like that comes along. Well, Rick, thank you so much for, for taking time and being on the podcast. I, I deeply appreciate this. Not at all. I'm happy to spend time with you and good luck and good fortune up there on the Northern Plains from your Southern cousin. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Rick again for his time and sharing his story with us. To say that I'm deeply appreciative of him sitting down and sharing his story with us is, is an understatement for what he has done for Native America, pushing forward our arts and our culture in the, in the way that he has, guiding us with his vision of leadership. Uh, is, is something that I am in awe of. And for for him to share time with us is something that I I am just indebted to. And so I, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I, um, I, I feel honored to have been able to share this space with him. So uh, Mr. West, thank you again for this. This was uh, an amazing experience for me. I also want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. So please join us next time as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on our Facebook page and our Instagram page at Five Plain Questions Podcast and at our plainsart.org website. There you can see our programming, our past videos, and these podcasts. If you have a suggestion for someone for me to interview, please find me on the Facebook page or email me at jwilliams at plainsart.org and message me. I would love to hear from you. Well, that's it. You take care and we will see you next time.
This has been an Eleven Nori Arts production.